Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Movies That Made Me is now a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Not, not your typical, not your typical MGM Thanksgiving treat. <laughs> you know what I, I uh, somehow with the with the pedigree and everything else, the way it was being presented, I hope I'm not ruining anything. I somehow thought it was going to be one of those movies where, um, uh, you know, we slowly build to the scene at the end that can be read as possibly involving cannibalism as perhaps some sort of metaphor. And uh, I would the say, what are, we, is true. what are we, Joe, about six minutes into the film? I'm going to eat this person right now. <laughs> not much doubt about it. It's it's a, it, I thought for a minute it was a remake of all the fine cannibals. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it is, it is a very, uh, it's a very uh, people eating people kind of movie. And it's a very unusual movie. And, uh, you know, as, as Luca's movies tend to be. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it, to, to me, it played like Badlands with, uh, with, with, with cannibals, which, which, you know, it's not bad. Not <laughs> yeah. a bad thing. No. Yes. I very, <laughs> very, very much enjoyed it. Uh, we're, we're here, I guess we should, we should jump in. We're here with, uh, oh God, we've done no prep. Watch me, <laughs> watch me do this, Joe. One take David Kajganich. I get it. That's, I mean, I've heard everything. I find okay. that a, a really charming pronunciation, but it's not. <laughs> Tommy incorrect, obviously. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. Give give me how do how do you pronounce it, sir? Well, it's it's originally Kaiganich, which is a oh, Serbian Lord. name, but my grandparents okay. were so you know tired of people mispronouncing it. They just tried to they did their best for a phonetic pronunciation, which is Kajanic, but Kajanic. that still doesn't okay. really help people enough. So I tell people it rhymes with Titanic or Mechanic, and they still they still they still <laughs> trip David, over David it. Kajanic. Is that it? Kajanic. Kajanic. David Kajanic. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, he's here. He's here. Under, <laughs> under whatever name. And uh, uh, he's here and he's talking about his third film with Good God. Here we go. <laughs> you do this one. <laughs> what? Luca Guadagnino. Right, Luca Guadagnino. Yes, thank you, Guadagnino. Um, <laughs> Trailer's from Hell Commentator. How do I? How can I not Wait, know has he name? done? Has he done? Um, yes, he has. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm, I'm behind. I should be I should be more up on these things. Uh uh I blame I've got a newborn. That's it. I've got a mm. newborn. Oh, I have that newborn that's a good, yeah, it's a that's, good excuse. <laughs> yes. Uh I but I even went out of the house to see this one. That was the uh <laughs> um and enjoyed it very much. It's called Bones and All. It is uh opening tomorrow um in theaters everywhere, I assume. And um I mean, well, it's just in LA and New York. Uh, it oh. started last night, just in those two cities for a week in five theaters, I believe, and then it rolls out to twenty five hundred on uh, 
Thanksgiving. Well, I've got another hour to get one thing correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's it's an amazing film. I I did, did not, as I said, did not quite know what to expect and was boggled and dazzled and uh, riveted and and wildly entertained in a more than slightly disturbing manner. Um, and uh, uh, I just don't even want to say too much about the film because I think so many I think, of I think the less said the better because uh, it's really a movie that you need to you need to experience it and you, you don't want to have plot twists and stuff over over a more than two hour period yes. uh, you know spoiled before you get there well also there was one really good trailer that was the trailer that was set to um, Leonard Cohen's uh, you want it darker uh, that was the right mix of imagery from the film, but not plot points or spoilers. And then, of course, MGM and United Artists released their own trailer that, mm. <laughs> that really covers a lot more ground. So I'm, I'm even telling people, don't watch the trailers <laughs> if you can help it. I, I've gotten to the point now where I pretty much only watch trailers to movies I'm not going to see yeah. or movies I have already seen. Um, it's just, it's, it's, well, it's like reading reviews. I mean, you don't want to read reviews. I mean, it's interesting to see whether it was pro or con, but you don't want to go into the details because they, they, they just specialize in telling you everything that yeah. you shouldn't already everything. know. Yeah. Everything. Well, it's, it's, it's become a new, I mean, a new thing. It's been years now where, where criticism has become that, where it's like, it's almost like you're padding the review by just explaining what happens over the course of the film as though somehow, uh, I miss critics. Old men railing against the way things are. Uh, David, it is a pleasure to have you, sir. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to be here. I listen to this podcast and think of it as sort of like a series of amazing slumber parties I wasn't invited to. Oh, <laughs> but now I get to be here. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. We've ruined it. Just don't fall asleep. <laughs> We've ruined it. Um, I'm not even, normally I am in my pajamas too when we do this, but I'm. I put mine on. Oh. <laughs> I'm wearing pants I'm all, today. I'm all fleece today. This is so intimate. <laughs> Joe, do you have pants on today? I do. I, I oh, often okay. have pants on. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, I'm often still in my pajamas. It's uh, it's a lovely thing. Um, uh, it's the screenwriter's life. Screenwriter slash podcaster. It's like I've just uh, gone out of my way to find careers that um, don't require trousers. Let's. Well, you know, this is not David's only script. I mean, you know, a, a bigger splash is uh, splashes. Correct. It's not yeah. exactly a. And Suspiria, and you've done uh, uh, some great TV, and um, and this, and we don't, you know, the show, you know, we don't do too much talking about uh, the people's work, but I was surprised to find out after the movie was over that it's based on a YA novel, and in in without forcing you to answer questions that I'm sure you've already answered a thousand times, and will answer a thousand more. Did, did you do a lot to it, or was that kind of, was everything kind of already there in terms of the material? Is it well, the t there were two things about the, the book and the book's author that, that sort of compelled me to make some fairly sizable changes. One is the tone of the book. And in, in, in I suppose a kind of YA idiom is, is a, has a very kind of fairy tale quality to the tone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the violence in the book is, um, is sort of summarized or maybe sort of leapt over in the inside of this kind of fairy tale tone. And of course, in a visual medium, it, I knew it was going to be a lot harder to pull that off. And I thought... Yeah that, you know, actually it was probably a, a more interesting visual ride if we stayed in a kind of completely naturalistic mode. And I think that did a lot to mix these genres up in, in, in film in a, in a way that I think 
uh, feels sort of surprisingly balanced. It's a road movie, a love story, a horror film, a coming of age story. It's a sort of a lot of different tones happening at the same time, but naturalism, you know, as often does sort of saved us <laughs> from, from sort of over articulating and any of those things. And, and then the other thing about the author, uh, in my early conversations with her about the book, she uh, wanted me to be sure that I understood, you know, the subtext of the book. And I, I assumed between these conversations when we were meant to talk about subtext that she was talking about feminist subtext or, you know, subtext that were more related to the central character who's a young woman sort of coming mm -hmm. into her identity. And when I, when I finally got on the phone with Camille for the subtext conversation, she said, do anything you like as long as this remains a vegan story. Which really took me off guard, and uh, I was smart oh enough God. to not I think say. I figured not, out how to get my not, wife to watch it now. <laughs> not register my surprise, but you know, as she talked, it made it made sense to me what what she was saying, and I asked her if it was all right if I amplified those themes somehow, and she said, absolutely. So there are a number of sequences and characters and things in the film that aren't in the book that are exclusively there to try to articulate more of a, a vegan subtext. And it was just such a, it was just such a, an, an unexpected part of this writing this film that I really I cherish. Was the cherish book, it. was the book set in the eighties also? No, it was set after that, but I, you know, obviously with a story like this, the, the, the less the characters can sort of research the better and the more they actually have to get out in the world and find out that, you know, it's really an important part of the story. Yeah. And I also just thought that sort of Reagan's America, you know, was full of disenfranchised people, full of people who were uh, tagged as some kind of, some kind of monster with a lowercase M. And I just thought it was a, maybe it would, by setting it in the eighties, we, we, we were under less pressure to try to articulate some of these themes in dialogue. And that's right. always my, my, my hope is that I can almost write a silent movie in terms of subtext and, and theme that, that really the, if the dialogue could be naturalistic, but the situations and the settings and the, you know, other elements that are the silent elements of the film uh, can carry as much of the meaning as possible. That's when I'm happiest. Well, the period detail is really uh, striking. It's uh, down to the uh, products in the, uh, in, oh, the yeah. in the market. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. it's like where did they find that? Where did they find I, boxes I, of that stuff? They uh -huh. haven't made it in twenty years. I have to say that grocery store scene was the uh, it was the set that was most um, upsetting to me because like you know I grew up as you know as a teenager in the eighties and you know going through you know. <laughs> A hell of a lot of internal uh, conflict and and um, walked into that set and forgot that in the 80s a lot of the people on packaging weren't smiling you know they were those sort of icy ladies on, on kind of makeup boxes and you know sort of kind of grimmer looking kids than we're used to on cereal boxes sure. and I just remember the gaze hundreds and hundreds of them kind of pointed at you when you walk in that store from various packaging it was really upsetting oh, that's true yeah that intense look off in their hair sort of looks like it's blowing in the breeze somehow artfully and and uh yeah wow I'm also I'm fascinated to see I can't wait for this to come out because I have a, a I have a teenage girlfriend I'll just leave that there I have a <laughs> A friend's daughter who is a girl. She is a friend. She's lovely. She's a teenager and she lives and dies for Timothy. And um, I have on several occasions, uh, my wife and I have taken her to like premieres of films where she's stood close to him and just quivered with joy and not wanted to approach him for, you know, fear of shattering the illusion. And I'm, I'm dying to see what her reaction to this film is. Yeah. It's, it's wow. sort of an amazing, 
um, thing to see in person. They eat people, and yet they remain so svelte. Anyway, let's let's get into because um, this is not what we do on this show. Um, well, we're doing it. I know, I know. <laughs> it's hard to wait. You know, we cut this stuff. Um, we never <laughs> cut anything. <laughs> Uh, David, obviously, uh, you, you like, you like movies. Um, we want to talk to you about some of the films that have sort of formed you over the, over the years that have helped kind of create your consciousness as an artist, if you will. Well, the, the chance to do this, as you know, from going, doing this many, many times, what an opportunity on the one hand, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm completely afraid of, of sort of leaving out foundational films oh. or, or sort of no, misremembering. That's, it's that's everybody says that, but that's not the point. The, 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 okay, the, it's, yeah. it's not a semiotic discussion. It's just, okay. it's just movies that you care about. <laughs> and the more people who maybe, may, maybe haven't heard of them or, you know, need to be pointed toward them. Uh, that's, that's a service that we provide. Well, that's even hard to gauge now. Who who has heard of of what films? I will bring up films that seem like the earth couldn't spin without these films, right? You know, sort of, and people still don't know them anymore. No, I mean, it's, it's true. It's crazy. It's true. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird time, and it has sort of as the shows evolve, we realize that's kind of our our primary mission, if you will, is to try to just sort of expose people's stuff through through the work of people whose work they like. Um, you know, if uh, if uh, if the if the person who brought me this film liked that movie, maybe I should check it out. Yeah. Well, that's so, the other the other use I have. My my secret sort of agenda for this conversation is if I tell you a bunch of films that I really love, you'll tell me back like a few I have never heard of. We, this we, is not an we, altruistic we, act being on this podcast. I want I want more. I want it more. has been known to happen that uh, yes, it's it's uh, often often we discover films and our guests go away with uh, new films to watch. So, but yeah, but you want to just sort of jump in? I mean, what was your like as a as a you know growing up or whatever as someone who uh, enjoyed films? Were you? Or first of all, where did you grow up and how? What was your sort of primary form of intake of cinema? Was it TV theaters? I grew up in the 80s in the Midwest uh, in a small town that had one theater with four screens that played exactly the films you would imagine a theater like that would play. So when VCRs came out and basic cable came out, you know, suddenly I had access to a much wider um, body of work out there, yeah. but but still curated by people who were trying to please an audience as opposed to trying to provoke an audience. But sometimes things would slip through that were really, <laughs> that were really uh, um, stealthily able to sort of pull open some kind of anxiety or some kind of kind of cultural question in a way that maybe the title or the cover art wouldn't necessarily suggest. So growing up for me, a lot of those were horror movies. Mm. Um, I remember, you know, the first time I saw a film and really really understood that there was uh, the, the text of the film and then there was the subtext of the film and I knew enough sort of about the Vietnam era that everybody was coming out of when I was growing up to, to know what that subtext was and this is Bob Clark's Death Dream mm. if you know that film yeah mm -hmm. sure. that, that film you know it's the pathos in that film is so much is cranked so much higher than than the scare value yeah, uh, that it was the first time I'd ever I'd ever considered that horror might be driven by something other than fear. And of course, now I understand horror films, good horror films are almost never driven by fear. 
it's always some kind of other emotion of rage or, or mourning or sadness, some kind of deep, sharp other emotion. And I think Death Dream was probably the film that gave me my first inclination that that actually was the, kind of the way to go. Hmm. Yeah, he's, he's um, I, I saw that very late. And yeah, I think I kind of had your reaction. It had been sort of built up and, and was like, this movie is not scary, but it it it, it doesn't leave you alone though. Um, it is, no. it's a very effective thing. And well, it's, that's it's, another version of the monkey's paw. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And he's such an interesting filmmaker too. Um, uh, a little guy who yeah. just sort of ag aggressively avoids being labeled an auteur. Yes. He <laughs> certainly has a diverse. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in case anyone listening doesn't know, this guy also directed Porky's. So, uh, <laughs> and, a and, Christmas Christmas story. and a Christmas story. And Black exactly. Christmas. And uh, Murder by the Crane. I mean, just some wonderful films. But And also, uh, children shouldn't play with dead things, if I'm, if I'm right. Yeah. Is that true? Did he, oh, God, yeah, with, with our pal Alan Ormsby. Yeah, I always, uh, think, I always think Alan directed it, and I have to remember he was only in it. That's right. No, it's just yeah so that you got that like at a video store and yeah yeah and you know along with uh <clears throat> um remember this film called black vengeance it had oh. it had a number of other titles it was also called poor pretty eddie i think it was called oh. red redneck county yes poor Park pretty eddie Hotel. With... oh my god leslie uggams is the protagonist of this film and i remember seeing this film i was probably 13 way too i mean I, I this isn't a film i necessarily think anyone should <laughs> anyone should see me <laughs> because it is that strange kind of film where it really feels like the filmmakers are, t are do are making exactly the film they wanted to make but in the way that sometimes when someone tells you a nightmare they just had and, and you're realizing before they're realizing all of the things they're revealing about themselves that that maybe <laughs> are coded into the story that aren't aren't necessarily flattering things. Or, or this film really took off the top of my head. It was Leslie Uggams plays a, a, a sort of a very famous uh, singer, and you meet her when she is singing the the, uh, the, the um, for a, a, like a stadium full of people. And they couldn't afford a stadium full of people. So it's, you know, instead of showing this sort of vista of a large crowd, it just shows a weird set of still photos of a flag kind of flapping in the wind. And immediately, you know, you're in the hands of some, some, some great curator, at least, if not an auteur. And she <laughs> has a breakdown. And so she decides that what she really needs is rest. So she's going to drive her white Rolls Royce into the deep south um, and sort of get lost on back roads. And of course, her her Rolls Royce breaks down and is towed into uh, <laughs> into a, a compound of a sort of restaurant, honky tonk, motel, and auto body shop run by <laughs> run by the the great uh, 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 an actress who at the time sort of commanded these these roles that were, I guess, like if if Tennessee Williams had sort of written horror movies uh, they would have they would have all sort of fe featured this actress and i suppose she's best known for for sort of her her wonderful death scene in the poseidon adventure but do you know who i'm talking about do you joke with joe knows shelly winters yeah. shelly winters yeah. the great yeah. shelly yes. winters yes. and so she plays this woman who runs this compound uh and the guy the actor who played lurch is one of her right. one of her Richard employers mm -hmm. and she has a sort of young young boyfriend who is an elvis impersonator and it's the one person who recognizes Leslie Uggams when she comes into this 
camp and is so excited to have someone to play his music for. And of course, Leslie Uggams is exhausted, uh, you know, terrified to be stuck in this place. And it proceeds, you know, into this really sort of sharply cornered um, sort of exploitation film about what happens to her in their in their hands. And it is one of the strangest films I've ever seen because it just keeps juxtaposing things that are rather banal or comforting with really images of, of pretty intense uh, abuse and violence. And I remember seeing that as a 13 year old thinking, you know, I, even if I didn't have the words to, to describe this, sort of like here is what happens when you are when you are driving subtext really hard and fast, but on an icy road, <laughs> you know, like, and you can see the film trying to sort of stay on the pavement. And every time it veers off for a scene or an image, it you really feel like it might actually be doing your, your psyche or your soul some damage. So it's the first, it was the first film I saw where I thought, actually, this is, this film is dangerous. This film is dangerously almost out of control. Uh, and so, you know, when I started to see films like these films, it made me then want to see films made by people who had as much to say and as difficult a set of things to say, but who were completely in control of what they were doing, mm. um, you know, which led, led me to people like Kubrick and led me to people, you know, sort of along that, that path kind of out of the, out of the eighties and nineties. Um, and now, you know, I, I don't even think anymore of going to see a movie as a chance to be entertained. I don't, that's not why I go. I, I want to be provoked. I want to be um, confronted somehow. There's so many things in the world that, that entertain and please us. I don't know why you would spend your $14 to go and see something that was just, uh, you know, one more kind of lullaby in your life <laughs> to keep you sort of calm and happy. So I, 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 I owe some of that to these, these really terrifying and sometimes terrible movies that showed up on late night cable TV in Ohio in 1985. It's funny. I, I don't disagree with you, but I, I do, you know, I like very much the kind of films you're describing, but I do also like, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly a place for sort of sitting back and getting your belly rubbed on a Friday night as well, at least in, in my world. But uh, I, I appreciate your um, purity of essence, shall we say. <laughs> but films, and I, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm I, um, sort of committed to something that isn't, that, that isn't uh, sort of full of life. You know, I mean, I, mm -hmm. To, to, to name some sort of films you're familiar with, like even something like Gremlins when it came out. It's a very entertaining film, but that's not the end game of that film. I mean, and by the time you get to the scene where Phoebe Cates is talking about Santa Claus and her yes. father's <laughs> fateful um, attempt to, to give his family that, um, that image, it's just, it's clear that we're in some other kind of headspace, you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not a story that's going to entertain anyone. Have I ever forgotten it? No, of course not. <laughs> and so I, I, and maybe that's another thing that I really have, have found that I like or even need from films, even films that I work on, is they should have some, they should, there should be some Trojan horse, right? That's, yep. that's used somehow for something really, um, if not, if not fortifying, then, then confrontational so i just mm. i'm all about the trojan horses and when you go to see a movie that you watch the trailer and you think oh this is one of those films and then you realize they spring the door and there's nothing in that horse it really really yeah. it's really frustrating why yes. go to all the trouble to build that horse yeah, yeah. no absolutely a hundred percent a hundred percent um 
Also, it's the first time somebody's come on our show and uh, uh, told Joe how much they were not entertained by gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> Which I at least appreciate. <laughs> much as I love that film. Uh, cool. So, so what what kind of films then? Like, where where did that take you? Oh well, a lot of places. I, you know, I, I I grew because I grew up in in the Midwest in the eighties, and I didn't um, I didn't I didn't go to a great sort of public school system. Um, so the teachers there were not. Uh, they hadn't really learned how to draw <laughs> a line between kind of lowbrow and highbrow art. So a lot of their own interests kind of creeped into their syllabuses and and I was I'm really grateful for that because now in my in my life, if you look at my sort of Blu-ray collection or my book collection, it's really mixed up. And uh and, and I think not only is that sort of healthy, you know, in terms of consuming these kinds of, you know, this media, it's also really healthy for making it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. when I when I work with directors who also feel that way, and Luca Waranino is one of them, we just uh, it 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 exponentially increases the sort of the depth of the conversation we can have because you know the sort of the references we can pull from are so mixed up and crazy. And so, you know, when I got to college and started to sort of really um, track down cinema that that seemed uh, exotic to me in the in the best ways, it was from every corner you can imagine. I mean, I you know I had a, my Cronenberg phase really hard, you know. <laughs> And uh, like my John Carpenter phase really hard. Uh, and then also, you know, started to watch, you know, the, the obvious heavy hitters, Kubrick and Tarkovsky and, and filmmakers like that. But then also, you know, started going to film festivals pretty early, not because mm -hmm. I thought this would be my, my own vocation, but just because I knew that there was this thing that happens sometimes where a great film would be shown to several hundred people and then disappear forever. And uh, I thought if I can go and see some of those films as well, like I, I just went on a, started on a hunt that, you know, a lifelong hunt for these films that um, would somehow speak, speak with a voice that was not necessarily a, a comforting voice. Um, and that was willing to sort of be um, a catalyst for difficult conversations, but often in the guise of something like a genre film. Um, and, you know, it's not a surprise that when I came to screenwriting, which, you know, I came fairly late compared to a lot of people, it was with this idea of, of, of trying to make films that that could be described the way I just described the ones I was seeking out at that point. Right, right. Yeah, so that's, that's your sort of affinity for genre in, in your work. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm with you somehow. I, I find um, I, it's just somehow more interesting when you, when you, bury things um in in a, in a genre it's a way of uh i think you um get some people who aren't seeing it coming but then when you get the actual fans who really understand or i take the term fans but people who really understand the genre they're actually expecting you to do that and, and when you pull it off they can be very yeah. initiative yeah or i also love films that that you know nine out of ten people or maybe 99 out of 100 people even wouldn't call a horror film say but that really deeply strike me that way i mean a film that that is sort of a central one for me that i came across pretty early was um picnic at hanging rock peter weir's mm -hmm. film uh, which is i don't know would you call that a horror film i do i, I find it sort of deeply terrifying uh, but not i guess in, in the grammar of a sort of an, a traditional horror film 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would and have. I mean, I think. Are you? Do you consider it, Joe? I, I think it's it's a it's a wonderfully disturbing movie, and I, and I think it's from from that that period uh, of Peter Weir is very interesting to me when he gets all sort of metaphysical and uh, you know uh, there, there's so many possible explanations and there's just an, an air of of eeriness that hangs over that movie that uh, despite the beautiful visuals you know because it, it looks like a you know masterpiece theater but um it's um it's a def it's a definitely a, a creepy movie and scary i think yeah, so, i remember i think being taken to see it as a teenager and kind of dreading it because you know it presents <laughs> as something else and actually kind of going oh this was cool <laughs> I, I don't know if my my parents knew what they were taking me to you know and <laughs> and and it, it it delivered enough of that that feeling that um yeah i mean i but but clearly it's not something that presents as a horror film but no and even the score it's what is a sort of a single flute the whole film and it really is uh it's such a strange way to build dread but it does it so effectively yeah. um you know, you sort of have that kind of score giving you this sort of whiff of something indigenous even, you know what I mean? That is, you know, that are primal, that is um, tied to the landscape as opposed to the figures in the landscape. And right. then, boy, you show one slice of cake with ants on it and it's, it's <laughs> suddenly it's, it's a, a void has opened and you're being sucked into it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So that's one that that really meant a lot to me in terms of of feeling like whatever sort of itch I had for for something along this these lines is sort of a metaphysical, you know, kind of cosmic uh, attitude, uh, you know, about human behavior. Um, you know, have you, have I, you seen Have you seen the last wave? Yes, I mean, fantastic. which is which is yeah, another a, another picture in that uh, in that line. It's a just it's a really fascinating film, I think. And um, I, I worked with Richard Chamberlain on, on something a couple of years ago, and I asked him about it, and he said that he it was one of his favorite movies. Yeah, well, it's I mean, and you think about a filmmaker like Peter Weir, clearly he can turn that switch on or shut it off. You know, mm -hmm. you think about other films he's made. Master and Commander doesn't have a whiff. Of the metaphysical in it it's a damn fine film still but it's it, it's interesting to me that this what we're talking about can be a tool you can pick up and use in some stories but not all stories mm -hmm. and there are certain filmmakers who can't put it down i mean tarkovsky is somebody who you know this is clearly it's not a tool he picks up it is it is his it's his hands you know right. what i mean it's, right. it's it's always <laughs> going to be part of part of films he makes and then you know what what's also interesting to me is when a film when a filmmaker sort of accidentally picks it up uh, and you sort of feel this sort of rearing its head in a film that otherwise seems to have no interest in it you know either it's a scene or a location or it's just an accident of the way it was edited or scored but there are times when i feel this in, in places i i shouldn't and, and you have films you know i think about a film like whatever happened to baby jane you know that's a film that should be full of what we're talking about and it and it, it kind of isn't until you get to the bank you sort of feel it there and obviously, when you get to the beach at the end, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really there. Uh, but it's not, it seems accidental somehow. And I, I, I watch those films very carefully to try to learn, you know, what the what is the threshold where you kind of cross in and out of it. Something like Dress to Kill, it's all over that film, but it, it really doesn't seem like De Palma gives a shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of just baked into the kind of language he's using. 
And then you have other, you know, a film like The Last Picture Show, which also, you know, it should seem like there should be some of that there and it isn't for whatever reason. Um, but then you get a film like The Hitcher, that Robert Harmon film with Rutger Hauer. And mm. uh, it's all over that film, but there's nothing else in Robert Harmon's career that has anything to do with that strange tone. Mm. And so I wonder, you know, when is it, when is it a product of some kind of alchemy between production design and editing where the director isn't really in control of it. And it's just, I, I, you know, even more than the idea that, that a director might, might provide to a movie that point of view is the idea that it can be, it can be happening accidentally. You know, these portals open up for a second and then they close because no one's really in charge of them. Fascinating <laughs> right. to me. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, we were talking about Bob Clark earlier and, and, you know, another director, I, love who's sort of steadfastly refused to be pinned down as sort of john houston i was just talking to somebody the other day about you know sort of in the middle of like shortly after doing um um you know man who would be king which is one of my favorite movies he has fat city and wise blood which do not share and shred of dna with with anything he's done before and feel like these sort of gritty movies made by a young filmmaker in the middle of the 70s and and he goes off to make any and yeah it's like he he turns off and turns on various and sundry well it was pretty apparent why he made Annie. yeah 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 no, no I, yes <laughs> but it's, it's, you know you, you you show that as a double feature with fat city i defy <laughs> but let me ask because you know the howling is a film that feels like it moves in and out of what we're talking about mm. um and it seems like there are some sort of some precise moments in that film I can point to and say, that's what I'm talking about. You know, the scene in the, in the um, sort of, there's like an office in a cabin where a, a woman gets cornered. Uh, yeah. Do you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. tell me about that. Do you feel, do you feel what I'm talking about as filmmakers and how, when, how, and when do you deploy it or employ it? Well, I mean, if, if you're, if you're a filmmaker who's simply being hired to do a job, uh, then you simply do the best job you can with the material. But if you don't relate to the material, then it's it's not going to be as good as if you hired a director who really grokks to the material. And since, you know, this was only my third movie and I was very lucky to get to make it at all, um, I, I invested a lot of myself and a lot of the things that I love about movies in this particular picture because you know you, you particularly when you're starting out you're never sure whether or not this is going to be your last picture mm. so you want to be able to put as much of yourself into the movie as possible because you may not get another chance and the idea of making a movie a, a werewolf movie was sort of like well i always liked werewolf movies but I, I i wanted to do something different i wanted to do something that commented on the previous werewolf movies and look forward to what the future might be uh, and, and and also it's a political movie because uh, John Sales is a very political writer, uh, and um, it, it turned out to be a movie that uh, we managed to get away with a lot of stuff. I mean, basically that's the way I look at it. Is anything you can get away with is is is, is good. Yeah, but there's I mean, when you think about that's the scene we're referring to, when the werewolf sort of gets up on the desk and you have those sort of those those blinds, you know, sort of behind it and the, the way that scene is lit. You know, I think a lot about, I've tried to think about sort of what are the operating rules to this sort of metaphysical vibration inside of films. And, you know, I, I without getting, <laughs> getting too academic, you know, I started to read 
know about this concept of the heterotopia that Michel Foucault put, at, put sort of put forward, where we have these spaces, these sort of you know liminal spaces, maybe somebody would call them, where they they sort of both mirror but also uh, problematize sort of our our reality. You know, they're sort of they're places where kind of kind of crucial um, events, you know, sort of happen more readily and more deeply because they they are um, sort of caught in the prism of of something, something metaphysical. Um, and that scene is one that I will stay it will stay with me forever because of things that are so specific. You know, the idea of breaking into sort of an office to look for something. Um, you think that the primary thing that's going to happen in that space is that you're going to commit this sort of slightly illegal act, but for the for a good purpose, but it ends up being the place of your death. I mean, things like that feel very metaphysical to me when when sort of things get swapped out for other things. You know, you you, you the people are it's not it's not necessarily like sort of the way that Greek tragedies move people around, but there is some element that there is a larger um, force at play, you know, there, that there is a classical kind of uh, pitiless force at play. Uh, and that, you know, that's just a scene. And, and, and I, I would raise that scene in any conversation about this subject, not just this one, uh, because it really hit home for me. It really stuck with me. I yeah, watch when that, it. When that hand enters the frame, it's it's not just one of the great jumps i mean there there is a there is a dread that i i still remember it it's so funny to say that it is is that um there's a dread to it that you don't you did not expect to finish that scene with you expected all kinds of things to happen you didn't expect that and and the instant that hand comes in and takes the file from her you just you know it's just going very dark and and very sad and very awful and that's it the pathos is there in a way that yeah you have to be open to it. If you're not open to it, it would be a, a, a jump scare and a series of sort of anxious shots. But there's a pathos there that I, that's what I want to. That's what I'm hunting down. I want to try. I want to try to be able to control pathos. You know, not control it, but let it in more to things that I do. Um, because not only I think is that a humanistic choice, obviously, to choose pathos over you know something that's just more aggressive, a more aggressive yeah. relationship to the audience. Um, but it also just feels like the pathos may be the key between something being physical and something being metaphysical somehow. And so much of that comes from the characters and what the audience feels for them. And sure. it's certainly true of of, uh, of your picture. Um, I mean, if it, if 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 you didn't care about those two characters, oh my god, there's no movie. <laughs> you know, uh, and the fact and the fact that they are who they are and that they do have their backgrounds and and particularly her. Uh, and which is pretty well delineated about the situation that she finds herself in, um, which is which is like all horror film stories. It's an absurd um, situation, and yet you you want to take it seriously. I mean, that's the problem with horror films in general: is that everybody knows that what's happening isn't real, but the the the, the more you can get them to identify with the characters and and feel what would what what if it would be real what if what if i was what if it was me and i was in this situation uh i think that's that's when the audience identification thing does your work for you sure well and maybe that's that's a great thing about learning uh about film and storytelling from horror films in a foundational way because horror films it's very clear what what works and what doesn't if, unless you're only interested in being brutalized or jump scares, if you actually want to be frightened, a horror film, if it doesn't invest in its characters, if you don't feel anything for its characters, it falls apart. 
they become not just ineffective, they become boring. Yeah. And so, you know, in other genres, it might be, it might take longer to sort of ruminate about why one works and one doesn't. But with horror films, I learned really quickly, um, you know, the, 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 the basic kind of moral center that ends up being at the center of a film like uh, The Sounds of the Lambs, which is the deeper your investment, personal investment into this character, um, first of all, the more options the, the, the screenwriter and the director and the actors will have in terms of furthering your understanding yeah. of that humanity. But that's also the way that you, you sort of take on sort of tropes of the genre and overturn them and make them more interesting. I mean, we've all seen a hundred films where some poor young actress is playing a character that would never go in the basement because we know, and she knows something terrible is down there, but the plot needs her to do it. So and, some and poor actress. Never turn on the lights. Anytime right, yeah, you go into a basement yeah. where people might be murdered, <laughs> yeah. you must go right. in the dark. Yeah. You know, but when you get to that moment in Silence of the Lambs that speaks to oh, those hundred yes. terrible films, you know exactly why Clarice Starling is going down those stairs and why she has both the sort of the moral sensibility, the, the, the actual training to do it all she has to do is master her fear enough to get down the stairs but there's we know why and to me that is such a victory in the form yeah. because no one's being pushed around in that film except the people who literally are the victims of buffalo bill yeah. um and so i guess what i'm because it, it's taken me back to kind of um uh you know one of the like two or three things i've ever been able to advise people about screenwriting i think had any value was um yeah, I think the second screenplay I ever wrote was a was a dopey. It was a slasher film, and it was basically Ron and Nancy Reagan driving around the American Southwest, <laughs> killing teenagers for doing drugs and having sex, and and calling each other mommy and daddy. And I realized immediately that I was working on it because I was still very much learning how to do it. That that this was an incredible learning exercise because the form was practically kabuki, and that yeah. I had to do no plotting. You know, I knew everything is already laid out. And so I could instead focus on those things you're talking about, creating characters and scenarios so that the stuff would have a resonance to it. And it was a really valuable exercise. I never went back to that. But just having having the framework already there allowed you to focus on things that you wouldn't have otherwise um, to the exclusion of a plot. And uh, um, yeah, as you say, I mean, I'd never even really thought about it before. But yeah, Clarice, Clarice goes downstairs into a basement with the lights off. And <laughs> boy, yeah. does it work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even, even questioned it yeah even you know Catherine martin who's at the bottom of that well is still given agency do you know what i mean it's just it, it and what that requires yeah. is only that you spend some time in the film doing it you know as opposed to sort of other less interesting sort of ways of of uh you know sort of, of the other genre spasms you could have in moments like that it, re yeah. it requires that you spend a little bit of time doing it and just that you even have the inclination to do it which is you know a big part of you know i i trained in in uh, fiction writing i meant to write novels that was going to be my my career and i'm here instead and when i first got to to hollywood and had a couple of you know had my name on a couple of terrible films they were terrible because I might have had the sensibility we're talking about in the scripts, but I was rewritten by or directed mm. by people who didn't. And you could see the the, the sort of the, the moments of quieter character building just stripped out of these scripts. And, you know, once they're gone and there's nothing to communicate to the audience that pathos or empathy is a priority of the film, then even what's left is it doesn't, you don't have a decoder ring for it anymore. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah. And it's just, uh, I was pretty crushed, you know, 
early in my career by by my inability to convince people that <laughs> that that maybe maybe empathy was the reason we should be doing all of this. But you know, I was found luckily. Uh, bef- you know, I had to deal with myself. If I had my name on three movies that embarrassed me, I would leave town and go back to teaching. And I was not packing my bags, but starting to make my plan to get out. And that's when Luca Guadagnino called me. And um, I made a big left turn in my career and started to actually be able to work with people who cared in the way that I cared. Yeah, no, that's um, that's everything, isn't it? And when you yes. find those people, you got to hang on to them. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, they be- they become friends, you know. Of course. I mean, because the, you, I mean, why care about the humanity of a film if you don't care about the humanity of the people you spend time with? That's right. So, and that's yeah. why, that's why, from movie to movie, you find the same people accruing around the directors, around the writers, because yeah. they're the people. Who, oh yeah, I, I know those people. I mean, I yeah. know, I know where, I know what they think. I know how they think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and what their priorities are. Yeah. Indeed. Um, give us, give us another one, David. Gosh, um, La Ventura is a film that is so uh, fundamental for me. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say every film I write ends up being La Ventura, but <laughs> I remember sort of seeing that film and <laughs> just the, the ways that it just agrees that it's going to be ambiguous with you kind of in a permanent way. Um, and instead, you know, build out a kind of whole world for these people to, to travel around in that is you know, part heterotopia, like we were discussing. I mean, it's, it's, it's this haunted landscape of towns with no one in them and you know, sort of, you know, rooms where um, people are really uh, evolving or devolving, um, but they're not public spaces, but we were allowed to enter them anyways. And then you have these, these bursts of just sort of weird, almost metaphysical chaos. I mean, there are, there are moments when you know, characters are walking through <clears throat> impossibly large crowds of men. <laughs> you know, like there, there's a. It feels like you've landed on a planet where you can only live in one or two places, and only men can live there. And then you sort of get a couple of female astronauts landing there, being like, "Where am I?" <laughs> and it is just, you know, such a, such a fantastically weird sort of metaphysical, like we're saying, kind of setting that film has. And it's not in service to any genre, really. I mean, what would you call that film? Uh, I guess all you can call it is a kind of metaphysical drama. You know, even the love story isn't very convincing. Do you know what I mean? But it's, it's just like being trapped in a, trapped in some kind of um, hypnotic state uh, with an agenda, you know, for you that isn't necessarily a good one, good one for you. But that's a film that I love. I, you know, when I saw Ken Russell's The Devils for the first time, I mean, that's a much more kind of vibrant operatic version of what we're talking about, but, you know, when you th- look at the production design of that film, clearly, you know, historical accuracy is not the priority here. And when you think about how that, that sort of those weird like white tile walls, you know, where they shouldn't be um, everywhere builds out this kind of strange, you know, is it, does it remind one of a hospital? Does it remind one of a prison? Does it, you know, I mean, the, the weird associations with something as simple as deciding to use white tile everywhere instead of the rock or, you know, that it should be, yeah. you know, and then you start to bring in weird um, period, acronyms, you know, anachronisms into the costuming, 
um, into some of the performances. And yeah. suddenly this, this film that one, one director might think this would benefit from as high a level of verisimilitude as possible. Mm -hmm. You have that all falling apart into this, this pile of sort of like, I don't know, kind of pop art trash, but it's being used in this way um, that is so um, uh, unnervingly intimate, you know? And I guess that may be part of what his point was is to sort of to, to take away the sort of the, the, what might be a sort of fussy verisimilitude with the period and just try to give you this, this the weird sense of this relationship um, between Vanessa Redgrave's character and Oliver Reed's character who are not in a friendship, they're not in a romance, although she would like them to be, um, yet they are bound to one another in the film by the sort of political machine that kind of uses one to assassinate the other. And it's just such a such an amazingly alive film oh, God, yeah. and has no yeah. doesn't seem to have any rules about reality, yet it hangs together perfectly. And, and talk about, I mean, God, you know, a movie, a movie that I, again, want to see a little bit too young or theoretically seemed too young that that felt like I was being dragged off to see homework. And those those moments, even more so than with Hanging Rock, when you realize not only is it not homework, but it's just absolutely just rip-roaringly entertaining and 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 shattering and confronting and it just. Uh, so, how old were you when you saw this picture? Me? Yeah, I had to be like in my in my early teens, probably. It was like taking to see it at the TLA and film. It was like, rated. <laughs> it was rated X. Yeah, but I mean, by this time it was in it was in you know a rep a rep theater and uh, uh, had played you know a bunch of times. I think my dad took it was probably a double feature with you know Tommy or something. So it wasn't new, is my point. No, God, no, no. I would have been a child. I, no, no I saw. I saw what it, it was took an eight year old, and to I see wasn't a child. Or <laughs> Wait, Joe, how old were you when you saw it? I must have been was a seventy one. I would have been um, 20, 28. 20, 25 i don't know something like yeah, that but you're you're primed for it too well i was a ken russell fan yeah you know exactly um but but i uh, worry if you're younger do you think oh that's this is what adulthood is going to be like <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think anybody ever thought their life was going to be like a ken russell movie but um uh, he was I, I just thought he was very talented i i i i saw first his uh his black and white documentaries about uh composers and stuff like that or you know and um he was he's a very talented guy and, and um perhaps not the most disciplined uh director in history but uh the devils is a unique movie which tragically is that warner brothers just sits on uh they 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 were embarrassed at the time and they're even more embarrassed and each successing each successive regime is more embarrassed than the previous one I, I, and I so there's there's that. no there's no no uh, uh video release of this picture that's you know official uh that's ever happened and well, I, uh, I guarantee you like you could you could walk the entire width and breadth of, of every warner brothers office and you couldn't find an executive there who's even heard of it let alone seen it nonetheless the that's the in. weird thing is like why how does how does that fix last this long i, I guarantee it's every time i'm at, at a meeting with anybody even remotely associated with warner brothers i'm tempted to bring it up to see if they've even heard of it and, and you know they haven't let's let's start asking it would be very interesting and i bet if you found somebody who did they would they would say i love it but i can't yeah. officially yeah <laughs> like, 
and there's and you know there's so many different cuts of it now that they're yeah. available so uh, well there was the one documentary they did which was an extra on maybe right. it was the bfi it's a great documentary yeah, yeah where you see you 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 can see on a screen that they're watching the sort of the famous sort of rape of christ scene you can yeah. see parts of it so you can get some idea of what it was how it was blocked um and uh, you know it doesn't seem any more or less sort of scandalous than anything else in the film but i suppose just the, the idea of that scene was so um offensive to folks but i just um i don't know i feel like i i am not somebody who necessarily aims at that kind of operatic tone very often because i don't think many things earn it <laughs> right but but that film if i ever did that film would be would be my my guiding light because there is something you never lose a very intimate sense of of, of the characters, yeah. um, in spite of the hysteria that that film is steeped it's in. Absolute madness, yeah, yeah. And I think about that film a little bit um, in the same way that I think about Elon Klimov's *Come and See*, which is another film that has again takes this strange, almost like it's almost like a metaphysical war opera. Do you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. it's it's a, more grounded than is *The Devils* and. And it, it it does seem to be trying to you know hard to sort of give you a sense of verisimilitude about about the period it's in, and and what the war must have been like in that in in that part of Belarus, um, but but there is something outsized about that film, and the, the character does seem to be operating partly under his own locomotion, but partly under again the sort of the the influence of something almost metaphysical, and that's of course confirmed when you get to the end of the film and and we are we are treated to this strange montage that runs backwards you know to get us sort of back before the beginning of the war um and, and you know that's a film that i i re find it really difficult to to articulate tonally what it's doing but what it's doing is unlike any other war film i've seen uh and it's addictive to watch even as hard as it is to watch um because you feel that there is something so intentional about everything happening in that film um and that that and that it's bigger than the sum of its parts which you know there are lots of movies that that op try to operate this way and and you can point to his scenes or you can point to sort of moments of you know of success but you know it's rare to have a film like the devils or come and see which which takes so many risks and still seems larger than the sum of its parts mm. yeah yeah mm. What else? Give us another one. <laughs> uh, okay, so a film that I saw uh, that that is probably not one that most people would have heard of. That is, I would put in the same list of films that have a kind of metaphysical quality to them, is a film by a, a filmmaker named Lawrence Thrush that I saw in Sundance in I can't remember what year it was. Uh, maybe. 2012 so. okay so maybe 2011 something like that and it is called pursuit of loneliness which is even a title i'm not sure i understand after having thought about this film a lot um but the the, the film the story is very simple it's about a, a woman who passes away in a hospital and they can't find a next of kin so it is about what happens to her and her belongings and there is no protagonist in this film as her case moves from office to office of people trying to, to have closure with the case, which means her burial, figuring out what to do with her possessions, all of these things, a different person becomes the protagonist for a little bit of time. Um, and then it moves on to the next office, the next desk. And it is 
it would seem like that would mean it was a very fractured film and there was no one to root for. But because of the tone of the film is this, not just a metaphysical tone that's sort of steeped in some kind of pathos, but a pathos that's being seen by a, almost like a, that's being given to you almost by a kind of higher power, whatever that means. It's a very gentle film. You know, this is a film about lots of people who were non-actors actually um, in, in the film. And he shot it in black and white so people wouldn't misunderstand that it was documentary. It is so faithful to the sort of the, the particulars of each of these people's work. It accrues this sense that you are seeing how if any one of these people in the story were to be able to have as wide a view as the audience, it would be a, an incredibly ennobling experience. But because none of them does, each of them considers what they're doing in the film to be sort of mildly useful and probably a, a failure at the end of the day because they can't do the task that they've been assigned to do. Um, and it is just a remarkable film. I remember watching it and the Lawrence was there for a Q&A afterwards and he and I have since known one another. Um, but I had so much enthusiasm for that film that I think I startled him in the Q&A by just being the one guy in the audience who seems to have flipped out. <laughs> like I kept shooting my hand up and asking questions in this really aggressive, like full of that sort of energized voice. And he, afterwards he said, yeah, I really hadn't expected that uh, <laughs> level of um, fandom. Uh, uh, but, you know, we ended up working together on something just because I thought this is somebody who you know, his film made me think if Chekhov were alive and making films, he would have made this film. And um, that's one that that really mm. caught me off guard, came out of nowhere. Um, I think you can see it online. I hope you can. Um, and I think he's gone on to make more documentaries than feature films, I think, because I don't know. He has this point of view about about tone and about sort of pathos and how it gets coded into story. Uh, that there may not be a wide enough audience for to sustain an actual career doing it. But boy, do I love his work. Um, I also saw a film a couple of years ago uh, by Guillaume Niclot called Val A Valley of Love. Do you know this film? I do not. It's, in it's incredible. Um, a tiny film. It stars um, two sort of kind of luminaries of French cinema, Isabel Huppert, and Gerard Depardieu play a, a, an estranged married couple um, that arrive to spend the film in Death Valley because they have been sent letters um, by their son who committed suicide recently saying, I know you won't believe me, but I know you'll come because I'm asking you to come. Come to Death Valley, go to these the following places on the following days in this, in this particular order, and I will appear to you. So very bold metaphysical sort of conceit in the middle of it. And then you watch Isabel Huppert and Gerard Depardieu, who we know to have been sort of <laughs> married and divorced in real life. And they're called Isabel and Gerard in the film. And they just do what their son asks. They go to each of these places. They eat terrible sort of chicken dinners at, at a state park restaurant. You know, they swim in the terrible state park pool. They interact with a bunch of terrible Americans on vacation, but none of it is played for comedy. But what it is played for is this sense of two people who may be in proximity to a miracle, who have no idea how to frame that for themselves, have no idea how to be invested in something like this, 
um, except to simply say I'm doing what my son wanted me to do. And it is where, where it goes. And it takes, I think, one or two sort of missteps. It goes a little bit further into the surreal than it, than it even needs to, to convince you of itself. Um, but it is a film that it has stayed with me. Um, I recently had a, a sort of a week in a cabin with this filmmaker called Laszlo Nemish because we're developing something together. And so we watched a film every evening that had something sort of related to what we were working on. And, and I showed him this film and we, we, we just had, we talked for four hours about it afterwards, late into the night, just about a film that takes, takes this kind of sort of, I guess you'd almost have to call it a spiritual chance um, to connect with it, with an audience with completely unspiritual characters. Um, and it was just, it was just amazing. It's, it's a film that is, 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 is worth a watch. It's not, um, it doesn't give you anything in the audience to keep you um, assured, entertained, mm. comforted. It just doesn't, it's as if there's no audience at all. Um, wow. Yeah. I'd never heard of that uh, or, or the other one. I just checked that. Um, yeah. Pursuit of loneliness is only streaming, uh, but Valley of love uh, is actually um, Joe is at movie, movies, movies are limited. Our, our sponsor, <laughs> our wonderful sponsor. Yes. They have everything. They're not only huge fans of our show, but they feature many of the movies we discuss here. So you can easily find them to add to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want. And there's usually a ton of great content and bonus features like director commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodies. So if you look in the wallet and there's no moths flying out and you have a couple of bucks you want to spend, why don't you buy your favorite movies at moviesunlimited.com. You'll find classics, imports, hard to find films, and also new releases. The prices are great and the choices are endless. Click the Movies Unlimited banner on the Trailers From Hell website and buy your favorites from hard to find films, imports, and more. Go now to moviesunlimited.com, the movie collector's website where shipping is always free on orders over $50. Our wonderful sponsor, yes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes. No, that that's great. Um, uh, I, I, I love when I've never even heard of those two films. Whoops. What happened? Oh, he's muted himself. Oh, sorry. I was just David. congratulating myself. That I... <laughs> I wish we did video. He was just jumping up and down and cheering. <laughs> he was on mute. Yeah. I had you, Joe, you were, you were stumped as no, well. No, no, I'm, I was, uh, they're new to me. I'm surprised because I've got with, with those, with those two actors, I would imagine. That one, especially. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you would at least think, and maybe this speaks to sort of how film illiterate most Americans are. I mean, imagine going, you know, with your kids on vacation at Death Valley and they're there. You know, right. shooting a movie you would think that would have showed up somewhere online yeah. but uh yeah but, i don't you know. and also there's the, the the vagaries of distribution in america of foreign films is another reason why we may not have encountered it yeah yeah but for instance we know everyone's well not everyone but people who love movies know about a film like jerry like gus van zandt's jerry you know that's that's a film that isn't so different in terms of scale or 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 you know th- sort of it has it has it has one you know a conceit that you can say in a sense that's pretty interesting um 
but because Gus Van Zandt is Gus Van Zandt, I guess that's how we know about that film, which is also a right. film that I quite liked. Um, I was surprised at how much I thought it worked. Um, but, you know, I think about, you know, again, on this subject of sort of how one can, can have a film speak in a kind of metaphysical language. I think of, you know, Monty Hellman's films have this, mm. the shooting certainly does a mm -hmm. uh, kind of metaphysical Western that I, I've watched a hundred times, just trying to understand how it codes that into its visual language. It is, God, that film is something special. Um, I think of Todd Haynes' Safe, um, which is probably a good example of a film about a heterotopia. I mean, sort of when Julianne Moore, who is allergic to everything in that film, finally ends up out in the desert in this sort of health commune mm -hmm. for people with environmental allergies, you realize, oh, it's just a mirror of the valley where she came from. <laughs> it's all, nothing's changed really, except um, the people are more emphatically invested in, in their illnesses. Um, and that, you know, that's a film I, it's so beautifully balanced and structured uh, and uncanny. It, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't behave like an American film. And I've, 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 you know, I've never met Todd Haynes, but boy, if I ever do, he should expect for <laughs> that, that Dave Kajanic, you know, sort of full press enthusiasm, uh, excitement. <laughs> I'm going to, I have a million questions for him about that film. Um, Carlos Regattas' Silent Light is another film that sort of, you know, it, you feel it in the film. And of course, at the ending of that film, there is a literal, not to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but there's right. a literal resurrection at the end of that film um, that feels permissible and earned because he has coded this kind of metaphysical sense into so many other images in the film. It's about a Mennonite community in Mexico um, where uh, a man is, uh, a Mennonite man is cheating on his wife um, and trying to end the relationship. And um, it becomes this um, miraculous religious event, I guess you'd have to say. That's a film I, I, I admire greatly because the metaphysics seem to be tied to the film's level of uh, pathos and empathy to its characters. Um, and that's a theme, I guess, part of what I'm getting at is that this meta the sense of the metaphysical seems to be um, tied to films that want to put their characters, emotional and psychological and spiritual experience in front of genre, in front of other things that might take your attention away from it. And maybe that's the, the use of a metaphysical tool uh, to a filmmaker is to add a, I don't know, a kind of whiff of the spiritual into a situation where you wouldn't expect it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm saying these things out loud for the first time. Like I wondered about this you know, <laughs> for years and years, but don't I've never you really believe it, folks, he's reading it. <laughs> I never had an occasion to like actually put it into words. So I hope, I hope it's, coherent what i'm trying to say yeah That's no very because you're you're i know that one of the films you're you're going to mention um is one that i've never been able to enunciate my feelings for but i just know that it elicited a deep and strange love um i'll let you guess there's a few left i'll let you know when we get to it but if 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 anything having now spoken to you enough if if you can try to put words to what's so fascinating about this film that also i believe joe hates <laughs> Are you talking about Amour? No, nope, I am not talking about Amour. No, no I, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, shall I just say it? Shall I say it? Let's you just might say as it. well just Let's say Trash Humpers. We, uh, <laughs> uh, I have a weekly movie night that I've been doing for decades now, and it's a bunch of like writer friends and other disparate folks. And 
it's a benevolent dictatorship. I program it generally, but you know, I take suggestions and I will never forget. I mean, when we did trash humpers, I think it was just my friend, Colin McCoy, who's an amazing musician. And I uh, were just overwhelmed with just love for it. And it's as close as anybody has come to physically attacking me <laughs> at every night for programming a movie. <laughs> Joe, you don't like trash humpers? I haven't. I, I, haven't, <laughs> I, have, I haven't seen it. Oh, oh, well, that's a relief. Once, once again, I've been, I've been uh, mislabeled by my co-host. <laughs> oh well, okay. I, Joe, I'm, I'm. I say with all the love of my because the, 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 I, I would, it would blow my mind if you, you loved trash humpers and. <laughs> you think well, I should? You think I wouldn't love trash humpers? I do. I don't think you would. But now I'm dying to see what happens if you see it. Well, I'll have to go to Movies Unlimited then, won't I? That's right. Well, they do have it. They do indeed have it. Dave, can you can see how you, we work um, these things in? It's very clever. That's very good. Yes, very I'm actually sweet. told that we're we're, we're coming perilously close to running out of time with you, which I apologize. But can really can you can you um not not me? You've got a it's you've his got people. A, you got a heart people. out. Oh, do I? <laughs> but what? Um, yeah, yeah so, you've got you've got. You're, you're, you're doing, you're doing publicity, pal. Yeah, This is your last chance to talk about trash humpers on a podcast. For a oh, while, I'm afraid. Okay, <laughs> trash humpers. Let me give you my 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 fervent. Why do uh, I love it? Pitch. I saw this film in a theater in the middle of the day, New Beverly, with two other people in the audience. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what it was. Right. I mean, I knew a little bit about Harmony Korine's work, obviously, but uh, boy, was I not expecting <laughs> what happened. Which is, you are just simply being shown videotape that a trio of people who roam around, I guess it's Nashville. Is that, is that the city that's sort of- I couldn't say. Tra transversing in the film. They roam around the sort of outskirts of Nashville wearing these old people masks. Yep. And they do things like smash, you know, tele televisions in abandoned houses and ride bikes and that drag dolls behind them and physically hump objects like trees and trash cans. And what well, is fascinating- fascinating about this film is you are you are watching documents that they they themselves have produced with a video like a camcorder and i'm i tend to think that the more subjective a film can be the better and this is sort of it's an extreme of that because you can only pay attention to what they are paying attention to so right. it becomes clear at some point in the film that they're hurting people um they never focus the camera on that, but you might pan across a kitchen and see a pool of blood and a body that's lying perfectly still in the corner, but only for a moment. Uh, and <laughs> the, the idea that you, I don't know that you grow to care about these people exactly, but you grow to acclimate to their yes. idiom, we'll say. Yes. And it starts to become so, sort of addictive because they seem to be happy uh, they seem to be liberated. Uh, they seem to make friends sometimes. <laughs> uh, and I won't spoil the end, but that, but one specific kind of crime takes place that forces you to reconsider your understanding of, of at least one of the characters on a humanistic level. But it is the most frightening experience I think I've had in a movie theater, not because there's a single jump scare in it, not because there's a single... Um, there's not really an act of violence per se, but you are just trapped in the subjectivity of somebody who is uh, ambiguous in terms of motive, um, unclear in terms of uh, action, 
um, and you are seeing a record that they have put together their own mixtape of their lives. And it is, it is, it reaches a point of metaphysics, I would say, because it starts to do, you start to have a relationship to what you're watching. That is, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's true, almost a spiritual one. Even though the camera is pointed at a spiritual void, the entire film, it's really, it's really something. It sounds a little like Man Bites Dog. A little bit, much less organized. Than yeah, that. Man Bites Dog is an episode of, um, you know, Dynasty compared to Trash. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also think, too, you had a very different experience, too, because you were in a theater. And at a certain point, you have to have been going, who are these other people who aren't walking out of this movie? And am I, and am I safe? Right. Do Which, I want to know them? Yeah, and I'm sitting in a living room with people I've known forever, so I at least thought I was safe until after. The... <laughs> but, oh my God! Well, well, David, thank thank you so much, man. We really, uh, really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, the film is Bones and All. It's opening tomorrow. I, I can't wait for people to start seeing it. I mean, there've been critics, but I can't wait for people to start seeing this film because I know I'm going to have some interesting conversation with friends. I'll, I'll... Yeah. I think you'll appreciate that. I didn't know you beforehand. I wouldn't have said this, but I think I, I do know I have friends in my life who are going to hate it. I have friends who are going to love it. I can't wait to talk to all of them. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. And it's got to be particularly fun for you. So, uh... oh, it's, it's the most fun. The, the idea of I, all I want to do in my career is make things with friends and stay out of the middle of the road. And that happened on this project. That's a word. That's a worthy ambition. Yeah, yeah, so. it, it really is. It really Josh, is. if you want to invite me over to your next screening of Trash Humpers, I would love to sit. Even, I don't even have to officially be there. I can just sit in a closet and look, look, look between the crack. I just want to see what other people do watching just, this movie. Just come out in the middle of the film and walk through the house. <laughs> dragging, dragging a doll behind me. Yeah. With an yeah. old person's mask on. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, okay. it's such a pleasure to talk to you both. This is a real honor i mean honestly i i'm a, i'm devoted to this podcast and so the chance to actually be on it and oh shoot, well, thanks david we're, is... we're, we, we we'd love we'd love having you and uh good luck with the movie thank yes. you very much the movies that made me is the official podcast of trailers from hell the best damn movie website there is our engineer is the composer john barrett who also transmogrified produced and created our theme song we are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for the movies that made me. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.